I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I kind of started to struggle a little bit with my mental health. And I think it was because of this whole identity thing that I was so wrapped up in this athlete mindset of your Cooper the Pro Surfer. And then when my results didn't follow up to how I saw myself, to the goals that I set out, I really started to struggle. And that was something that I, that really set me on the path with the work that I do now. Cooper Chapman is an all-round good human. He's an ex-professional surfer and the founder of the Good Human Factory. After being affected closely by suicide in his Northern Beaches community, Cooper set out to empower and educate young people on the achievable tools for good mental health. In just a few short years, Cooper has delivered workshops to over 30,000 school kids. He's created a gratitude merch line, which I love, and he's also founded the 1% Club with daily meditations, as well as hosting over 100 episodes of the Good Humans pod. His list of guests are seriously goals. Cooper recently finished one year sober, and as many of you know, I'm currently two years sober, so we had a lot to talk about there. Today, we cover all things high-performance sport, mental health, relationships, and the importance of gratitude. Enjoy my life chat with Cooper Chapman. This is Life Chats, deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks for being on Life Chats. I know that you grew up on the northern beaches, but what do I kind of need to know about your childhood to understand the person that you are today? Oh, you listen to, listen to Stephen Bartlett's <laughs> yeah. podcast, don't you? Sorry, <laughs> CEO. It's like, how else do you start? I've been using that exact oh. thing. What do I need to know about you? So okay. what do you need to know about Cooper Chapman? Um, I grew up in the northern beaches, mm-hmm. North Narrabeen. Beautiful part of the world, three awesome sisters, one older, two younger, awesome parents still together, still living in the same family house, been there for 30 years. And yeah, I had a pretty, I guess, structured, normal upbringing. I feel like I grew up very close to the beach. My dad always surfed and um, yeah, very sporty family. I played rugby quite a bit as a kid, but pretty typical upbringing. And I think I wouldn't say I was on the privileged side of the fence, but I definitely didn't go without. My family worked hard with four kids. It's always about just getting by. And yeah, I was very lucky that from a young age, I was quite talented at sport. Rugby union was kind of my sport of choice up until I was about eight or nine. And that's when I found the surfboard and fell in love with that and yeah, pursued surfing for 15 years from 10 till 25, 26, 27, I guess. I um, yeah, traveled around the world surfing and yeah, had amazing experiences, met some amazing people and learned some lessons that have allowed me to leapfrog into the work that I'm doing now as a mental health business owner, I guess you'd call it. But yeah, I, I look at mental health through a pretty different lens to the general consensus. But yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it as we go through the chat. Yeah, for sure. So talk to me a little bit about finding your passion in surfing. Was that something that your parents were supportive of? They're like, yep, chase your dreams. Or was it kind of like, oh, you know, it might be harder to take a crack at that industry and be successful? Like what was the narrative around that? I mean, I was very lucky. My parents were never forceful into anything. They were always just full support. I had quite a bit of success in rugby union up until I was like 12, 13, and my dad enjoyed taking me there to the footy. But from about the age of 10, surfing became a bit more of a priority. An individual sport, I think, is a little bit easier to kind of... Success isn't the right word. I think just doing an individual sport was a lot less reliant on other people around me. Surfing, Mm -hmm. going training for surfing was a lot better than going for training for footy. So I just sort of started to lean towards that. And yeah, I had a bit of success from a young age in surfing. We have events from like the age of 10, basically called Grom Comps, like under 12s, 14s and 16s. And yeah, I started competing at like 11 years old in surfing and was quite quickly at the top of my division in 12s, 14s and 16s. And yeah, sent me on that path really throughout my high school years. I was, yeah, really into my surfing, getting sponsored, getting paid, surfing, representing Australia in world titles all around the world. Yeah, which was really cool. And my family was very supportive of it. All of my sisters had never really went too hard into any sports, but always had the opportunity if they wanted to. But 
for me, because I grew up at North Narrabeen, it's quite a notorious beach globally for some of the best surfers in the world. So I had this pathway almost in front of me already. It wasn't like I was going into the unknown. Mm. There was generations of surfers. In particular, my older sister's best friend was Laura Enovar, pro surfer herself, and she was like three years older than me. So my mum and dad were always alongside her family as well, watching her achieve all these Mm. goals as a surfer. So it was like this path was already set. It wasn't like I was chopping down trees, walking through the jungle. I got to kind of walk a path behind somebody else. And what was the lifestyle like? Like you're touring the world, you're traveling, you're young. Like is there, I think there's a bit of a notoriety around being a pro surfer and being a teen boy as well at the same time. Like, can you reflect on that at all? Yeah. I mean, I lived a great life. I tell you, I look back and I was traveling the world surfing Mm -hmm. from the age of 13 years old. I found my old passport the other day that was from when I was 13 to 18, like a Mm five-year passport. And I think I had like 10 trips to Indonesia in those five years. And that's like obviously through school as well. So it was really cool. I got to experience a lot of the world from a young age and understand that there's so much going on out there. I think it allowed me to Mm -hmm. have a pretty different perspective going through those last years of high school that there's boundless opportunities out in the world, whether or not you go to uni. And that was something that obviously because of my surfing, I never really had uni in my mind. I knew I was getting paid to surf in year 11 and 12 and had contracts leaving school. So it was an amazing way. Looking back, like I was so lucky. There was definitely some, yeah, <laughs> some, some crazy experiences along the yeah. way. And I feel like I got there in like quite a nice time where surfing was quite notorious for being very loose. Mm. I feel like I was in somewhat the first generation of really taking the athletic side of it more seriously. Like I was always training in the gym, working mm. super hard with coaches dialed into my equipment. We definitely had some fun on tour, but I think we were the first generation that wasn't like going out the night before events. We were like very focused throughout the events and then we would have big blowouts to kind of finish off. To celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Talk to me a little bit about like the athlete's mindset because this is really interesting to me. Like, do you think it's something that can be trained or are you influenced by the way that it's the old like nature versus nurture debate, but growing up, do you think that to be successful and driven and ambitious and, you know, chasing these big goals, is that something that can be trained into someone or that's like, that's born into you and that's just a part of who you are as a person? I don't know. It's an interesting question because I feel like I definitely was so competitive when I was Mm. younger where, I don't know, looking back at it, I feel like competition in my mind was like very ego driven from me. It was all about people seeing me do well and my whole identity when I was a teenager and kind of even into my early twenties was so wrapped up in Cooper, the pro surfer. Mm. That's how I saw myself. That's how I felt like everyone around me saw me. And it's probably how they did. So when my results were good, I was kind of, yeah, this happy go lucky, awesome guy. And then I kind of got to the international tour when I was about 20 and joined the sort of big pack rather than just the Australian junior tour. And I kind of started to struggle a little bit with my mental health. And I think it was because of this whole identity Mm. thing that I was so wrapped up in this athlete mindset of your Cooper, the pro surfer. And then when my results didn't follow up to how I saw myself, to the goals that I set out, I really started to struggle. And that was something that I that really set me on the path with the work that I do now, because mm. this is a story that I tell with the good human factor is this idea that we don't need to base our self-worth and our identity on our career, because quite often we're going to come up short of the goals we set. And yeah, that was a, mess- a lesson that I got taught by my sports psychologist in my early twenties. And it's something I'm so grateful for because it did just change the whole perspective on my life. The mm. mindset that I had this kind of, not victim, but this complex of athlete, everyone around me is trying to help me succeed to trying to strip back from that and realizing that there's more to life than being an athlete. And I think that's why so many athletes do struggle post-career because we don't get taught to transition and we don't get taught that the world isn't all about Mm -hmm. us. Because as an athlete, you've got all the coaches helping you to achieve your dreams, all of the staff around you helping you achieve your dreams, your family supporting you to achieve your dreams, Mm -hmm. and then you finish your athlete career. And it's like, oh, wait, now I need to kind of just do all this for myself and no one really cares. So I think that's where a lot of people struggle. And I feel like I'm very lucky that I kind of learned that from earlier on before I retired so I could transition a lot smoother. Totally. And what was the kind of like trajectory that you were seeing for yourself? Did you have a plan for after you retired or was that something that you just didn't think about at the time? I was always very curious, what am I going to do after? There was almost this deep-seated fear of like, Mm. what's going to happen after? Like, I've missed uni. I've missed doing an apprenticeship in my early 20s. Like Mm. my friends, I don't really want to be an old, like a... Mature age student. Yeah, not that there's anything wrong with mature age Mm. student, mature age um, apprentice. 
but I just didn't see that path for me. I was always very somewhat entrepreneurial. Me and my older mm-hmm. sister would always come up with like little ideas and business models. But well, I lost my major sponsor at about 23. I was sponsored by Hurley for like seven years and that basically funded my whole career. And when I lost them, I had to make a big decision. Do I continue chasing the surfing, but I need to make up $50,000 that I'm not getting paid anymore, mm-hmm. which is a big thing to have to try and do when you're 23 years old. How do I fund this career now with no financial backing from anyone? So I started working full-time as a tradie, doing like some landscaping work and working at Manly Surf School and then doing some like building work. And that was almost for a while, I was, while I was doing that work, I was like, this is probably my transition now. I'll just keep doing this while I can try compete and still travel. And I did that for about two, three years. And then COVID hit and that kind of changed my path a bit, but I'd already started the Good Human Factory. So I was was always trying to like, for the last few years of my surf career, the Good Human Factory was slowly being built with the anticipation that one day it will take over and Mm kind of, yeah, that came this year. I'm keen to talk more about that. Before we jump there, I just want to reflect on, you did say something about, you know, you were transitioning away from being this achievement-based athlete, this person to more about like your values and your purpose and your identity. I think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast will kind of be sitting there, you know, sometimes I feel the same way. It's like, how do I even do that? How do I start to figure out what my values are and what my identity is? And, you know, if I'm a high performer or I have a great career or I've always been praised for my achievements, how do I slowly start to move away from that? What were the first things that you started to do when you're reflecting on what your values might be? Oh, one of the first things that I started to do was read books. Yeah. I just found that I never read it when I was younger. And when my sports like said to me, what do you value? He kind of challenged me and said, I want you to stop basing your self-worth and identity on your career. And I want you to start basing it on your values. And I was like, well, what, where do I find my values? And he said, I want you to start reading other people's stories and mm. putting yourself in their shoes and just finding little bits of their stories that relate to you. And it kind of reminded me of something my dad always said to me as a kid. He always said, it's great to learn from your mistakes, but it's even better to learn from somebody else's mistakes. So I began to read different people's books. Some of the ones that I read were like Andre Agassi's book, Open, mm-hmm. phenomenal, just about him finding his purpose. Um, Hugh Van Kylenberg's book, just all these different people who had really interesting stories that I admired and found mm-hmm. little bits that like, oh, I respect that part of his story. Like, oh, when he was really kind, that aligned with me. Oh, when he was really grateful, that aligned with me. And I started to realize that there's many, many ways to view the world and view our mind rather than kind of what we get taught at school. So I began to read all these self-development books and it just opened my mind to so much that we just don't really get taught and we have to take responsibility Mm -hmm. and go and find ourselves. And that's kind of where I started to find my values was just reading different self-development books, different things that lined up with what felt right in my intuition and things like kindness, gratitude, mindfulness, Mm -hmm. like they always felt right to try and live by this sort of good human underlying ethos of what we all want to do, but I just didn't know how to do that. And now, I mean, I'm still so far off where I want to be, but I think just the self-awareness that I have now, if I'm not doing something right, or if somebody gives me some sort of criticism, I can take it on and actually try and use it to better Mm -hmm. myself rather than just react to it. It's such a process though, right? Like it's a lifelong journey when you sign up to self-improvement and self-awareness. It's like, you don't just get to a point where you've arrived and you're like, okay, I'm here now. I'm I'm good. I think Mm. it's an ongoing thing. But if you had to describe your main values now, what would they be? So the five values that I, this is exactly the keynote that I do all the time. I did it this morning actually for a student. Give us a little snippet. (laughs) So the five values that I talk about that I think are super important. The first one's responsibility. I think that's got to be the first one because unless we're taking responsibility for our own mental health, for our own life, then it can go any direction. So it's building the um, awareness that we do have the opportunity to choose how we live our life mm-hmm. and then taking action. So the first one's responsibility. Second one's gratitude. Mm-hmm. I know if I'm practicing gratitude every day, it's allowing me to see life through a completely different lens, looking for those positives in life rather than the negatives. Sounds so simple, but there's so much great neuroscience that backs it all up. So gratitude, empathy, it's a skill that we all have but can all get better at, listening mm-hmm. something that I feel like we're all getting so much worse at with mm-hmm. the distractions that we have. So with empathy, I talk about listening, um, the importance of that, the importance of respecting other people's feelings and emotions because we're all so different. I feel like we don't take a step out mm-hmm. of our own shoes very often and we need to. And then judgment with empathy is so important, like dropping judgment and realizing that there's no real need to judge unless it's coming from a place of love. It doesn't really need to be said. So that's empathy. Fourth one's mindfulness. I think it's so important that we be more present than we are. It's something that I really struggle with, but it's something Mm -hmm. that I'm continuing to try and get better. So mindfulness is a 
big uh, value for me. And the last one's kindness. I feel like kindness is something that we don't get understand well enough that if we're having a bad day, don't go and buy yourself something nice. Go and do something nice for somebody else. That'll actually make you feel good. And we live in this consumeristic world now that we always forget we're getting pulled left, right and center by thousands of bits of marketing every single day. When you buy this, then you'll be happy. Mm. When you go on this holiday, then you'll be happy. When you eat this beautiful new pasta we have, that'll make you feel good. Mm. It's all wrong. When we begin to realize that the consumeristic world we live in is just trying to tell you in, tell you you're insignificant without their products or services, it's like, wait a second. Wait, there's all this science behind gratitude, behind kindness, behind mindfulness that show that people who practice these things are happier people. So let's try and promote that a bit more. So yeah, they're the five values that I try and live by each day and yeah, that I really try and promote to my channels to whether or not they align with my values, but at least understand what their values are. Totally. I think the work that you do is just awesome because it it sounds simple. It's very, very hard to do on a daily basis and be routine with it. But if someone's listening and they're kind of like, okay, how do I start to do that? Do you have any, I guess I'm keen to hear like, what are your daily practices or maybe your toolkit and what would a day in the life be like with that in mind? So I'll give you a very easy one, an easy one for your listeners to sure. align with. So a couple of years ago now, I'll tell you, 670 days ago from now, and I'll tell you why I know. I was lying there doing a meditation and I was like, oh, I'm this mental health guy now. I'm speaking mm. to thousands of students, but I'm actually not meditating every day mm. and I'm not practicing gratitude every day. I need the accountability. So I was like, surely we can give 1% of our day to our mental health. And I was like, surely everyone can agree. Listening right now, yeah, 1% of our day we should be able to give to our mental health. It's the biggest killer of people aged 14 to 44 in the country. It's pretty important. So I was like, what's 14 minutes? I, I was actually in a meditation and my mind was going so wild that I stopped the meditation. Yeah. And I looked up on my calculator, worked out what 1% of 24 hours is, and it's 14 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, what can we do for 14 minutes for our mental health? So I was like, well, meditation's amazing. Let's do 10 minutes of meditation in the morning, four minutes of gratitude at night. There's 14 minutes for your mental health, two simple things that don't cost anything, and it's just a bare little minimum. So then I was like, all right, I need the accountability. Mm. So I was like, all right, I'll start some Instagram an Instagram group and just send a guided meditation in the morning and write three gratitudes in at night and then tell everyone to write their gratitude so we can keep each other accountable. And that was 680 days ago. Now, now there's, it started with like 40 people. There's yeah. about a thousand members now from all around the world. And yeah, it's every single day for the last two years, almost now I've sent the meditation in the morning, my three gratitudes at night. And there's been over 300,000 gratitudes written in from just strangers wow. all around the world. And yeah, it's completely free to join if you're listening. And you, yeah, if you're listening right now and you're like, oh, maybe I can get need that accountability. Just send at the good human factory mm -hmm. a DM on Instagram saying I want to join the club. And yeah, you get added in. It's completely free, always will be. But it's just that accountability that I need too. Mm -hmm. But because of it, now I've meditated every day and now I've done gratitude every day for two years because of having the groups around me as well. So it's, um, yeah, that's a really good tool. And I think just a good bare minimum for all of us. Totally. I think it's, yeah, it's often, it comes down to the little things that you do day to day that add up rather than they're having to be this big overhaul of your life. I think that's what scares people to kind of changing things or changing their routine. Whereas 1% is like very doable for all of us. Exactly. Um, let's rewind a little bit. Cause I want to hear about, you're very passionate, you're a mental health advocate. Where did that passion come from? Is there a personal story there or any sort of inspiration about why you started the Good Human Factory? Yeah, there is. So the story goes like this. I um, I had some family history with mental illness. Mm -hmm. I lost an uncle to suicide when I was quite young. And I watched my dad suffer bits and pieces, nothing mm -hmm. too serious, but a bit of depression, a um, bit of alcohol addiction, just a couple of things that just weren't right with him throughout my teen years. And I saw that and I was always kind of, I had this underlying fear almost. You'd hear like mental health is hereditary or mental illness is hereditary. So I was always, I think, had this small underlying fear. And that kind of led me to my early 20s having this curiosity, what can I do for my mental health? When I got challenged with one of my values, I took it quite seriously because I was like, I'm going to need this work. So I had no intention at all to start a mental health organization whatsoever. And then my younger sister came home from school. Actually, I'll tell you the long version of the story. So yeah, then, I, I, then I ran um, a surf camp because I needed to, when I'd lost my sponsor, I needed to make some money. I'd been coaching the surf school. I ran a little surf camp for like eight high performance kids and did like surfing, skateboarding, nutrition, surfboard design. But then in the, one of the exercises I took them through was a meditation mm -hmm. and then a visualization skill. And they all really liked it. The parents all said to me after that, that was one of their favorite things. Once again, didn't think anything of it. And then about a month after that, my younger sister came home from school and it was me, mum and dad, three sisters sitting around the dinner table. And my younger sister, Sophia, was in year 12 at high school and she said one of the boys in a year had taken his life. 
And that was something that I was sitting there, like I'd just got back from traveling around the world overseas, living this amazing life. And there was this kid in my local area that was so unhappy that he'd taken his own life. And kind of like most of us do, I like looked up some of the stats, I posted an Instagram tile and kind of life went on. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, he came home and was sitting around the dinner table, exact same situation, mum, dad, three sisters. And my younger sister said, another boy in her year had taken his life. And that was when I was just kind of sitting there just going like far out, like what am I doing to help? this obviously crisis and problem we have here, something that we kind of all see and look the other way from. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh. and I remember my dad just, I guess, seeing me visibly torn up by it. And I was like, wonder what I could do. And then he's like, why don't you try and go and speak to some kids at schools? I remember the parents were all saying that the meditation that you took them through was good. Maybe that'll help the kids at school's mental health. And I was like, oh yeah. So I gave my old school teacher a call who was a friend of mine who was a teacher at my school, Narrabeen Sports Eye. I said, hey mate, have you heard about the suicides of the kids in the area? He's like, yep. I was like, I was thinking maybe I could come and speak to the kids a bit about my story. I've learned some great lessons along the way. I've worked with some of the most amazing coaches in the world when it comes to psychology. Maybe I could share some stories with the kids that might inspire them to pick up some of these skills. And he was like, yeah, I went out a beer with him and he's actually a careers advisor and pretty entrepreneurial. And he's like, mate, there's actually kind of a opportunity to maybe turn this into a business as well if you wanted. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I just kind of wanted to talk to the kids mm -hmm. and maybe inspire them. And yeah, that was three years ago now. And now I've spoken to over 30,000 students. I've spoken to corporate groups like Telstra, Apple, McDonald's. And yeah, it's been a wild journey from that moment of being a pro surfer that somehow transitioned to having this, yeah, mental health organization. It's grown so quickly, which I think it's a testament to like how much we need this work and how much the impact it can have, you know, on especially young people who maybe don't know how to have these conversations or they don't know the tools that they need as well. But yeah, tell me a little bit more about your own mental health journey. Have you found that there's any ever been any moments where you've kind of like fallen back and not known what tools you needed and not known what to do? Or do you feel like through your work, it's been a real strength for you and stability in your own mental health? I mean, my, to be honest, I still struggle at times. Mm -hmm. I still am going through all my own personal things, but I understand that if I'm maintaining certain different parts in my life, then I will be okay. I'm lucky. Mm -hmm. I've got very supportive people around me. I've got a you know, I mean, a business that's doing okay now, I'm in a good place right now, but there's obviously been so many struggles, but it's been funny with the good human factor. I've never really seen it as like a business or mm. if it's going to fail or not. I've never once like had this idea that I'm going to slow down or stop. And I remember when I was like starting and I said to my account, like, oh, I want to open a business, like a um, bank accounts for the good human factor. And he was kind of like, oh, wait, you're actually like doing this. You're sure. Mm. And I was like, well, yeah, it just has always felt like the path to go down. It's, um, come really natural because I just remember like looking at the mental health industry and the scope of all the charities and almost all of them come from this angle of mental illness and talking mm. about suicide, depression, anxiety, opening up, asking for help, seeking advice, which I think is so important. But 99% of the industry is targeting the 20% of Australians who have a mental illness. Mm. My whole angle is like, let's make it real positive. Let's show that 100% of us have mental health. Only 20% of us have mental illness. What can this 80% of us and the 20% who do have mental illnesses the work that I try and put out is something that covers everyone. It's about trying to mm. give people who don't have a mental illness some tools to enhance their life. It's not just about mental health and mental illness. It's just about overall well-being. And that's kind of the angle that I feel like there is a couple people doing quite well in mental health. Hugh Van Kallenberg's a big He's inspiration awesome. of mine. Mm. And I think it's just giving people who, oh, I don't have a mental illness, but I'm not feeling amazing right now. It's about developing those yep. skills so that we can just, yeah, continue to enhance our lives. Hi everyone, a quick reminder that if you are loving this chat, I would be so grateful if you could take two minutes now to jump on whatever platform you're listening to this and leave a review or share the episode you're currently listening to on social media. I'd love to see where you're listening from, if you're going for a walk, if you're at the gym on the treadmill, if you're driving, obviously don't take a photo if you're driving. <laughs> But it is so incredible to see that we now have listeners from over 35 countries tuning in. And the more that we grow, the bigger guests I can bring you. I am so, so grateful that you're here on this journey with me. And I'm excited about the live chats that we have coming up with some absolutely inspiring guests. Thank you so much. For me, I don't know if it's just a circle that I'm in or like uh, being on social media and a lot of people are sharing so openly and vulnerably, which is, you know, amazing that we have the power to do that and we're empowered to do that. But it seems like a lot of people are struggling with their mental health. Um, I can't speak for, you know, high schoolers, but why do you think that that is? Where do you think that that's coming from? It seems like 
mental ill health is on the rise, even though we have all the tools and resources and we're more open to speaking about it. A lot more people seem to be struggling. Maybe that's not a correct reflection, but I feel like a lot of people our age are kind of being more open with what they're going through as well. I think we just, for one, don't get taught the schools how to deal with mm. this stuff. And I think we're just living in such a changing world mm. that it's impossible for our brains to keep up with it. Like you look at what kids are going through now, the lack of connections that we have, even though we're so connected online, but the lack of actual connection, looking in people's eyes, having mm. conversations, I think is one of the main reasons why mental health is declining. The just stolen focus that we all have, like right now, it's so hard to like have any sort of deep connection with people because we're so distracted and we're mm. so caught up in the pace of life that we have to be always doing something. Whereas it's like, wait a second, when do we actually just do what we want to do when we want to do? It's like, what's life actually meant for? And I just feel like there's that lack of connection as mm. kids. And as well, obviously, social media is a big one, but I just think there's never been a time where we're comparing against everybody in the world. Like you used to maybe only have to compare against your small community, yeah. the one kid in your footy club that was better than you. Now it's like, oh, wait, I, it's just a big eye-opener, I think, now that mm. everything is so connected to that a lot of people feel so super insignificant. But it's like, how do we start to encourage people that you don't have to try and have a huge impact on the world? Like you just have to try and have an impact on your world. It's mm. never about the whole world. It's just about, yeah, thinking a bit smaller. But I don't know. I feel like I didn't really answer your question. No, but that, I, I think it's a great. really hard one to put your finger on why people are struggling because there's all so much... There's so much conversation about this, but I haven't heard one that really has nailed it on the head mm. for me. I think it's just a mix between everything. A multitude of things. And it's hard to know if like, I don't know if the stats are actually that mental health, ill health is on the rise or if more people are just being open about it. And mm. now, you know, it's actually a reflection of what people are really going through because they're, they're sharing. But I think what you said is so true. Like our brains aren't made or designed to deal with the amount of connections, even on a daily basis that we have through social media or through work. Like I was reading um, an incredible book, Lifespan, and it was talking about like, imagine, you know, how we've evolved. Imagine if you were standing in your community and 400 people were lining up to tell you what they thought about you. That would just never happen and you wouldn't be able to deal with it. You'd be like, oh my gosh, another opinion, another opinion, another opinion. When you're on social media, it's very easy to have hundreds of people tell you or, you know, like or react or give their input into who you are and what your work is. And I think our brains can't really comprehend that. It's very, very difficult to to come to terms with that. Oh, and it's so hard. Like every, everything we look around us is, yeah, likes. And yeah. I mean, now I'm sure you'll start to learn this as well with like podcasts, like looking at my downloads and then like, Your oh, analytics. I'm down. It's yeah. like, oh, it's a, is that a reflection on me? Or it's yeah. like, this is stuff I deal with all the time. Like, oh, I'm doing great work. People are reaching out. But then it's like, yeah, but I don't even have the biggest podcast in my family. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> it's funny. I heard um, Bronte Campbell on The Imperfects a couple of weeks ago yeah. speaking about her and her sister she was like, I was second in the world for swimming, but I wasn't even the best swimmer in my family. And I was like, that's kind of sometimes how I feel about my podcast. Like my podcast has grown to a nice little level. It gets some people listening to it, but it's a dwarf compared to my sister's podcast. So it's like a lot of people look at me and go, oh, you must be stoked. You're killing it. But it's like comparison's such a evil thing, but it is also a motivator. So it's trying totally. to find that balance of like, oh, it's okay. I'm on my own journey. Does that pressure come from you though, or from your family? Or is there like sibling rivalry? Like, where is that? Oh, it's not the best in my family. I know you're kind of like half joking, but I'm the same. I'm, I compare myself to a lot of different people. It's like, why should I even be doing this if I'm a nobody? Or, you know, why will people want to talk to me if no one knows who I am? Like that narrative. But where is that coming from for you? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's like partly from just being a competitive yeah. person partly from like oh the podcast was my thing and then my mm. sister's just coming in her first like four episodes did, 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 did more than 200 of mine <laughs> um but no I'm just super proud of it to be yeah. honest I'm like pro surfer mindset victim Cooper would have been far more jealous whereas now I'm just like epic she's helping a lot of people mm. like you're never in competition with anyone in this world unless you're one-on-one -on -one in something and even then it doesn't really matter all you can do is the best you can do and then that's it so totally yeah, I mean, I have zero jealousy towards the podcast and stuff. I just bring it up because it's kind of yeah, funny because yeah. people are like, oh, you can. I'm like, yeah, but I'm actually. There's always a new goalpost. Exactly. Or there's always a new height to reach. And I think that's just intrinsic to being a motivated or driven person. You're always chasing like the next goal. And you've got to be careful that you don't like run away with that and um, it doesn't get the best of you because it can be very easy to just always think of a new level that you want to reach. But I like that you said that you would do good human factory even if it wasn't successful, you would do it because you love it. And, you know, you never had this idea of where it was going to go. It was just something that you felt the need to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just never 
even seen it as like, oh, it might not work. I'm like, mm. just it, it just is. <laughs> it's yep. kind of like I'm going to keep doing it anyway. So, yeah, I think it's been, yeah, a lot of businesses fail in the first couple of years, mm. but it seems to just be ticking along as yep. it is. But now I need to learn the next sort of hurdles of growing a business. But yeah, excited for that chapter. What do you want to do? Do you want to continue going around to schools or corporate or like where's the ideal um, avenue for you with this? There's a few different ways that I can take it. There's the route I'm going to try and bring on a few different ambassadors or friends of mine who are ambassadors as other speakers under the good human Mm -hmm. factor. I have a few friends who are keen to get into public speaking, but I also understand the barrier to entry of having the business and getting the relationships with schools has been three really tough years for me to get to where I am. So now I've got that relationship. I can bring my friends under me to come and share their story because I know I'm not going to connect with every student. So I'd love to give friends of mine who I think are super inspiring a platform Mm -hmm. to inspire students and whatnot. So that's one potential growth area. I just want to myself like get in front of more students, get Mm -hmm. in front of more corporate groups. I really love speaking to adults and just challenging that way people think about mental health. So often mental health is that anxiety, depression, suicide, dark kind of conversation. But I'm like, no, it can be this gratitude, kindness, mindfulness. Oh, wait, I do all these things and the byproduct is good mental health, not, Mm. oh, wait till I struggle. Here, call this number. Here, take this pill. It's like, no, what what can we do every day so that we never go down that path? So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. It's like physical health as well. I think people, you know, you don't wait. Um, Some people do, unfortunately, wait until they're obese or like, you know, very unfit to think like, how can I actually improve my physical health? Whereas mental health and and physical, it has to be a daily commitment. And even spiritual health, if you're that way inclined, is like, how can you be putting those little deposits in the bank every single day to kind of improve that connection to yourself and to others? Yeah, it's like, I mean, you look at it like, imagine you're up in your brain, there's Mm. like a forest and if you don't go up there and maintain it every now and then, it'll get overgrown. So it's like we need to keep up there nice mm. and clean, nice and organized and just give it place to thrive. Or if it's overgrown, nothing really works. So, yeah, it's just about keeping it clear up there. But there's lots of places I want to take the good human factory. I kind of like lost myself and then remember where the question was going. But like <laughs> it's okay. The merch is like a big <laughs> yeah, one yeah. for me to continue to grow. I think there's a big opportunity there. And mm. then also the podcast is something that I absolutely love, getting to have conversations and connect with people and learn their stories. Yeah. and. It's a quite a selfish endeavor. I feel like I just get to ask everyone great questions, what I want to know. And I'm lucky enough that people yeah. in my audience have started to really appreciate the questions I ask and get a lot out of it too. So it's been good. Tell me about the podcast. So what made you want to start it? Um, your first few guests, what What are your reflections on how it's going? Like, yeah, let's talk about the Good Human podcast. Yeah. So the podcast has been around for just over two years now. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, it's been around almost for three years. Wow. I just hit episode 100. Woo, um, congrats. That's yeah, awesome. Thanks. So like three years ago, it was when I just started The Good Human Factory and mm-hmm. I had a friend of mine that was sort of coming on to intern and help a tiny bit. I look back and like I was so not established. I'd done like one or two workshops. Yeah. Um, but I was like, said to him, I kind of wanted to do a podcast. And he's like, oh, I've got a family friend who's the CEO of Southern Cross Asteria. Mm. He said he'll have a meeting with us and you, we can talk about The Good Human Factory. And looking back, we took I took in this business plan. And, oh, my God, it is. <laughs> I'm, I just like laugh thinking about it. But anyway, I went what, in there. What was embarrassing about it? Oh, I just, it was before like I'd even gone and done a work. Yeah, I'd yeah. done maybe one or two workshops and I was telling all these grand plans. And yeah. like I look back and it's like this CEO of this big thing. Like I feel like now if I go in, I'd feel established. But I feel like in three years, I'd look at me now and say the same thing. You never know. Sometimes they back that ambition. They're like, mm, we like that you, you know, dream big. Well, this is where the story goes. So I tell him all this stuff just to get some advice. And then I say at the end, basically, oh, I'm also thinking of doing a podcast. I'm very lucky. I have quite a deep network from my athlete career to my sister. And yeah, I've got a really deep network and this really versatile group of people around me. And he was like, oh, well, we own Podcast One. This is before Listener. Maybe we can help you out. And I was like, all right. So they set me up with a meeting with a producer and they brought me on under Podcast One. I got like a 20 podcast contract before I'd even recorded an episode, which is so amazing. I look back and I'm like, I was so lucky. Incredible. Which was great. I had a producer kind of taught me how to keep conversations evergreen and ask the right questions and a couple little bits of tricks and tips here, but that was right at the start. And they've lent me like one microphone and a recorder. And I used to like record me and then hold the mic over. I know cameras for my first like 30 episodes, but the first 20 episodes were kind of spread out fortnightly. And then I'd take a break after like six episodes because I just wasn't consistent with it. So the first kind of 2020 to really the end of 2021 were like 25 episodes, quite slow, never really grew any numbers. I didn't even get access to the analytics. They kind of did it all. 
And then I was like, hey, I want to go, I want to go to weekly episodes. Mm. And that was where everything kind of changed for me. They were like, oh, we can't support that. We don't have the like the resources. Yeah, we don't yeah. have the resources. And now I can see why. I can see the numbers from back then. And I literally didn't grow for like the first year and a half with them, mm-hmm. which is nothing on them. It was me as well, not being consistent and not being on the case enough. Like they must they must have hoped that it was going to spike, but it didn't. So I went out on my own. And ever since going on my own, I've kind of like doubled every, or well, not doubled every month, but like had super, like I was doing like a thousand downloads a week once I took over from them. And now I can I do like 14 to 15,000 a week. Like, 14 months later. So since yeah. I've taken it, it's like 14 times from when I took over from them, which it was like that for like a year. So yeah, it's been amazing. Do you I think that it's because you own it now and you're responsible for the success of it that it's, you know, you obviously love what you do and you love connecting and you're curious, but like you're seeing the analytics every week. So there's that drive to be better and improve it and be consistent as well. Yeah. I think once I took it over myself, like it evolved from like to weekly guests, like I haven't missed a week now for like a year and a half with guests and then turned it into the 1% club thing I was mm-hmm. talking about with mm-hmm. gratitude. So now I do a 1% podcast as well, which is a 14 minute episode weekly where I read out some of the gratitudes from the people in the 1% club to so sort good. of empower the community and then talk about a topic each week. Mm-hmm. And then I just did a year sober and I used to do um, yes. a weekly episode about my sober journey. So I was doing three episodes a week for like a year. Who's with- editing them all? I do it all myself. That's you massive. Already this before. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's crazy trying to do that as well as yeah, develop, do all my bookings for my workshops. Obviously, all the back end of stuff and then merchandise. Like, I juggle a lot of things, but the podcast is just fun. Like for the first two years, hundreds and hundreds of hours of editing mm. and recording, it did make a dime. But it was just the connections and the network I made through that and continue to make through that is just unbelievable. Getting to share someone or talk to someone for an hour and a half, an hour and let them have space to share their story builds mm. a connection that not many people get with humans nowadays. So I feel very privileged to be able to do that. And now that it can create a bit of an income for me and allow me to, yeah, continue to talk to people is amazing. It's a pretty wild concept, isn't it? Like we're strangers. We just met half an hour ago and now we're having this deep conversation. Whereas like you might walk past your neighbor. I live in a unit block. I don't even know who lives next to me. And like you can meet someone and have an amazing conversation in the bubble of a podcast, but you can't say hi to someone who shares a wall with you. It's just this crazy world that we live in. But I'm also so grateful that people come on this show too and just share open-heartedly and there's kind of no barriers and no boundaries as to what we talk about. I think that the world needs more of that content, even though it's a very saturated space, it's like that content is valuable and that helps people feel connected, I think. Yeah. And I think we're just lacking that connection. Mm. I listened to one of Stephen Bartlett's podcasts actually this morning with this guy who's done this like 80 year study on human, on like happiness. And, um, is it, is it, that's like the longest, I think, study study ever done. Anyway, where I was going with this is there was a study that he brought up in it where they got, they did a happiness test on people who were on the subway Mm. and they said to the first group, you just go do your normal subway trip. They did a happiness test at the start and at the end, nobody changed. And then they said, all right, as much as it's going to feel uncomfortable, this group of people, you need to start a conversation with a random, like a stranger on the train or whatever. And as uncomfortable as, as it'll be, that's just your challenge for this bus ride. And they're like, all right, they did it. And everyone who did the, well, not, not everyone, but a high percentage of people mm-hmm. who did that rated improvement in happiness than the people who just stayed doing their normal devices. So I think it's important that we recognize that we do, as much as it does feel uncomfortable at times, need to learn how to have these conversations mm-hmm. and learn how to communicate Connect, with people because yeah. it's something that, yeah, I feel like is really evaporating. Yeah, we're kind of losing those those skills, I think. But you mentioned you just did a year sober. I'm nearly two years sober. So let's talk about that. Thank you. Fuck, it can be very hard, but I don't want to go back and I feel like I'm good with it now. But let's talk about your journey, like what kickstarted that and what were the first few months like for you? So I had on my podcast, if anyone wants to go back and listen, episode 44 of Good Humans podcast, this lady by the name of Nicole Vignola, she's a neuroscientist. She's actually really big on Instagram now. I did a podcast with her and she went super viral on a few of my TikToks and she had like a couple thousand followers. Now she has like 400K. Holy hell. Anyway, she, I'm going to do another one with her, a catch-up episode. But wow. anyway, so I had her on and we spoke about the effects of a whole range of things on the brain. And then one of the subjects we spoke about was alcohol. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Basically, you look up anyway, Andrew Huberman's a great one to research yeah. into. But yeah, alcohol is obviously poison. And I was like two weeks or three weeks away from my 28th birthday. And I was just on the podcast with her and I was like, oh, far out. I've been drinking from 18 to 28. I mean, probably a few years younger than 18. <laughs> for yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 14, yeah. whatever. 
And I was like, you know what? I'll take a year off. I'll do 10 years on, one year off. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of said it on the podcast and then didn't have a drink for, and then like two weeks later was my 28th birthday. So Mm -hmm. I didn't do, so I called the podcast 28 and sober and yeah, didn't have a drink for all of 28 and a few weeks before. What was the first few months like? Did you have to kind of explain to everyone what you were doing and talk me through social events? And did you have any strategies for navigating that? Or you were just like, nope, this is what I'm doing. And you kind of just took it as it, as it came. I definitely had that mindset. I think by setting the challenge, it allowed me to feel like, okay, well, I'm just not doing it. Like I don't need to feel tempted until mm-hmm. that year's up. So there wasn't that many, too many hard times, to be honest. I was just like, no, nah, it's done. Did like, anyone give you a hard it. time? Like your friends or, well, why don't you just have one? Or they were just like, no, we respect you doing yeah, this. Yeah. Abs- all the people closest to me absolutely respected me. Mm. And when I'd tell them, they're like, oh, sick, that's cool. And then you'd get the odd person. I'd go out and be around an environment where a lot of people were drinking and I'd be like, oh, I don't drink. And I'd be like, oh, come on, surely you can have one. And then I'd explain it. Oh, I had a neuroscientist on, just trying to take a year off my health to see what happens. And almost everyone goes, oh, I wish I could do that. Everyone says that. Hey, I wish I could do what you're doing. I'm like, you can do what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that was interesting. And then one of the things that I learned that was a big changer for me, I had the TikTok boys, Luke and Sassy Scott on my podcast, mm-hmm. great friends of mine, really cool. But Scott doesn't drink either. And I was down in Melbourne catching up with them. And we went out to this non-alcoholic Dan Murphy's event. And I was talking to Scott about it because he doesn't drink either. And he's like, the thing that helps me is like, I didn't stop drinking. I just stopped drinking alcohol. Mm. And once I started to frame it like that in my head, like, oh, I can still have a non-alcoholic beer. I can have a non-alcoholic cocktail. I can have a sparkling water. Like mm-hmm. I can have a range of drinks. I don't just have to drink water. Like most of your friends, if you go, oh, I'm not drinking, it's like, I'll grab you a glass of water at the bar. It's like, no, I didn't stop drinking. I just stopped drinking alcohol. There's Mm -hmm. many options that don't have alcohol. And once I started phrasing it like that, I was like, oh, it made you feel like you're still involved in drinking, but Mm -hmm. just not the alcohol part. And that was some way that I framed in my mind that helped. Yeah. Did you find that your socializing has changed at all, like over the course of a year? Because I feel like I was never um, someone that would go out every weekend. So I kind of didn't miss out on like the benders or, you know, the partying because I just wasn't doing that to begin with. But I do find now that like if I know my friends are going out for a night out, I often will, they just know that I'll come to the dinner and then I'll leave afterwards or, you know, it's just not for me. But for you, did the way that you socialize change? Yes. And I definitely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I had, um, I'm very lucky the life I get to live. I have amazing opportunities to go to a lot of events where there's free alcohol and Mm -hmm. amazing experiences. But I mean, they've been happening for 10 years and they're going to continue to happen. So it's just like nice to have this little stamp in the middle of my life that I could take a year off. I think obviously a lot of my friendships sort of group changed. It got a lot mm-hmm. smaller just to the people who I hung out with without that environment. But no judgment against the other people. Like yep. people I don't see that often anymore. I'm sure once I start going back out mm-hmm. a bit more, it'll change again. But I think the relationship will be a lot different with alcohol. I have had a couple of drinks in the last week. I was going to say, have you had a drink? I had, I had a glass of wine on my birthday <laughs> oh. with my, my partner. I um, just moved from Brazil to Australia That's like awesome. a few days before my birthday. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, she's been by my side for the whole year, like yeah. in and out of when she's been traveling. But yeah, we had a glass of wine for my birthday, which was nice. And then she just got... um accepted to a nice modeling agency yesterday in Sydney, the other day before, yesterday in Sydney. So yesterday I brought a bottle of wine to awesome. congratulate her. So you're going to try and pick my moments, but from twice in a week, I've already drank. <laughs> At least you didn't go like, you know, you didn't go fully on a big party night out, a big bender, but. Well, I'm going to Europe in two weeks. You never know. Weeks. I'm going to Europe in two weeks for like a three-day festival in Malta. My brother-in-law is throwing a festival in Malta. Yeah. And then we go to Ibiza and he opens Ibiza. He's got residency at a club there. And then we go on their private jet to like Paris, Manchester and London for three days of festivals. So I've got like... Pretty hard not to so drink I've got, at those. I've got seven <laughs> nights of like massive parties. Um, That's okay. Make up for a year of not drinking. Your yeah. body will be fine. Your well, liver will be fine. Well, and then I'll take a year off again. So <laughs> I think I'll have a very different relationship mm. with alcohol once I get back from that trip. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like I think when you go a year without or longer, you kind of realize, okay, I can do this, but then it becomes harder to, for me, I'm just reflecting on my experience, like integrating it back into your life is quite, that's a whole process in and of itself. Mm. It's like, okay, I did this year or these two years and everyone asked me, okay, like when are you going to drink again? Do you know when you're going to drink? And for now, my answer is just like, I don't know because it doesn't feel right for me to start drinking right now. So for now, I'm not going to. But I do wonder, like, what is that going to look like if and when I do start drinking? Am I going to be, like, grabbing every drink because I feel like I've deprived myself? Or will I, should I just continue not drinking because mm. it doesn't feel right? I don't know. Yeah, it's felt like, like, last night I had, like, two glasses of wine mm. and I was like, 
starting to feel a little bit tipsy and I was like, yeah. wait, this is like. <laughs> You're lightweight now. Yeah, I was like, I don't know if I like this feeling. I've mm. got like a lot of drinking coming up, but mm. yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what it was like once yeah, I get back from Europe. Yeah, have to check in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See how we go. But I did love um, Dr. Daniel Amen is like such a great resource mm. for anyone who's sober curious, I think is what the term is these days. But he was talking about how you look at all the brain scans and all the brain studies, I'm sure you heard this, is the most eroded brain matter is not from someone who takes heavy illicit drugs. It's someone who regularly drinks. Their brain matter is of the lowest quality. Mm. So that kind of scared me as well. I was like, okay, I'm such a health freak and I want to do everything possible for my health, my mental and physical, but I'm like going and blowing out on the weekend and undoing it all. And I was training for triathlons and I literally couldn't train because I was hungover and then, you know, you eat crappy food and... So, yeah, it's a yeah, journey. Absolutely, absolutely. But it's good to be able to take It's mainly to just know you can. Yeah, your willpower. My, yeah, I'm like, you know what, I can take If I ever mm. decide, you know what, I need to quit, I know I can take a year so I can quit if I need to. It's like a little muscle that you can train, you know, mm. that you've got it. We'll wrap up soon. I just want to quickly touch on, you've got a few exciting projects happening. Tell me about them. This actually isn't my project. These guys just sponsor my mm-hmm. podcast for anyone listening, this um, brain drink. drink I've been or- seeing them everywhere. Yeah, they're, they're all over the bus stops and yeah, stuff yeah. here. It's called Drink a Rapper. They're um, this New Zealand company who basically, I've had their owners and a few people on my podcast and worked for a few of the energy drink companies and we're like, what are we doing? We're watching like kids walk out of service stations with cans of V and cans mm-hmm. of Red Bull, like shit's poison. And they were like, let's try and make something that actually is healthy. So they teamed up with one of the world's leading neuroscientists, um, Professor Andrew Scully. Mm-hmm. He's ranked like top three in the, like out of eight or 12,000 when it comes to nootropics wow. and how it affects our brain. Um, so yeah, they teamed up with him and they've spent five or six years on developing clinical studies and making sure their product works. Um, and yeah, now they've landed on an amazing product. They've just done a bunch of big thing mm-hmm. of marketing now that they've got the science to prove that their product actually works. It's um, all natural ingredients. That's I mean, awesome. I'm kind of just promoting That's my okay. sponsor on your podcast, but it's something that I truly <laughs> believe in. So where that comes from is I'm like now a brand partner with them, which yeah, has been yeah. cool. They don't really work too closely with many other people. And they're, I think they're about to change the game because their product's amazing. But I also am a part owner in our cold company, Gravity, yeah, Gravity Seltzer. Tell me about that. Yeah, just a friend of mine, Harley Clifford last mm-hmm. year was like, hey, there's this guy that approached me that wants to bring together a few top-level athletes to integrate a seltzer company that's not all about partying. It's more so about having a couple around the campfire, down the beach to finish your day. But then obviously low in alcohol, seltzers are just one standard drink. So you can have three or four of them, finish your day up, wake up and still be able to go and explore more the next day. So it's been fun sort of learning a bit more about that mm. and trying to have a bit of input. I mean, it wasn't great taking a year off alcohol <laughs> a month after I signed. <laughs> no taste testing. A month after I signed the deal, yeah, yeah, no taste testing. So I'm excited now to get a bit more deep into the work with them to try and grow that to more people and really share the message mm. that we want to do, which is yeah, to try and encourage people to explore more. And then, yeah, obviously the Good Human Factory keeps me very busy. So totally. I've got lots of projects going on there. I just want to quickly touch on, you mentioned your beautiful partner just moved out from Brazil. Talk me through like being in a long distance relationship and what that's taught you in the last year. Like you're on your own journey, you're doing your sober thing. And then you've also got, as you've just said, all these exciting projects. And then you're also trying to nurture a relationship. What's that like? To be honest, it's been the best relationship I've ever been in. I had, I met my partner, Carol, when I was in Portugal, my Mm -hmm. last trip around the world for my surf events back in 2021. She lived in New York for 10 years during her 20s as a top model, then has kind of been back in Brazil and between Brazil and Portugal for a few years now. And she was looking at moving from Brazil to Portugal while she was checking out places to move in Portugal. She met me and I was like, you should come visit Australia. And she was like, oh, if I have time. And then the next year in 2022, she came for like a month in May, got along really well still. And I was like, you got to come back. And then she came for three months at the end of 2022. And that went really well. And we're like, Let's try Let's do and it. do it. So yeah. she um, just moved back in May. So we had like three and a half months apart and then she just moved back and she's doing like a student visa for mm. 12 months. And yeah, we'll see what happens. But no, it was, it was, to be honest, quite fine. She's a bit, she's 37. So she's a bit older than me and has been through her own life. And she's very spiritual and very present and very connected. And she's been through her journey to the point where she knows she has to live her life. I live my life like we had such a great experience while we were apart. It wasn't like, oh, you didn't message me tonight. Mm. Or it's like we went two, three days sometimes where we didn't speak. She was like, oh, I'm going to retreat or I'm going to be out of reception. It's like, oh, good. You're, you're living your life. I'm living mine. Great. And then we caught up. It was good. There was no judgment. And 
Yeah, it's a really different relationship than I've ever had. There's just great understanding and communication. If something's going on that she's been overthinking, she'll actually bring it up to me and get clarity if that's how I'm thinking. And yeah, it's just a very different look at a relationship than I've ever had. So I'm very happy. That's awesome. I think from everyone I speak to and hear from, it's like when two people are secure and they know how to communicate, that's when like that's when you've hit the jackpot because it's kind of like you're building this thing together, but you're also okay on your own. Yeah, which has yeah. been good. I haven't um yeah, I haven't had this before in a relationship mm. where it's not like, oh, I wonder what they're up to or checking mm. in. It's like, no, I've got complete trust. You do what you do. I do what I do. And when we're together, it's just even better. That's awesome. We have a closing tradition on this podcast. Every guest is asked the same question. I don't know if you've heard, you might not have, but you can answer in as many or as little words as you like. And the question is, Cooper, what is the meaning of life? Oh, I thought I was going to get this question. The meaning of life. This is a tough question. I think the meaning of life is learning as much as possible along your journey and then sharing it with others. I think that for me is what the meaning of life is, getting to experience as much as we possibly can and then getting to pass it on to others so it continues on. Thank you so much. With that, we'll close up. I just want to say thank you. I'm incredibly grateful. You've been very, very generous with your time and your knowledge and sharing everything that you know and kind of your tools. Can you please just give yourself a shout out? Where do you want to link people to? Is it Good Human Factory, the pod, all of the above? Just feel free to kind of tell them where to find you. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of places to find me. I guess the main ones are just, if you want to find me on Instagram, it's just Cooper Chapman, um, the Good Human Factory on Instagram and thegoodhumanfactory.com is the website if you want to learn about my workshops, the merch. And, and the 1% bit, Club. And the 1% Club, yep. that's over on Instagram. So mm -hmm. check that out. Send us a message if you want to join. And then the podcast you can find on YouTube. So um, Spotify, Apple, just Good Humans with Cooper Chapman. So yeah, plenty awesome. of really nice episodes on there. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at Life Chats Podcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats. Mm -hmm.